All right. Well, praise God. He is good. And uh, I'm excited about what I have to share, share with you today. So take the study guide out of your worship folder. And this is going to be one of those sermons where I'm going to ask you to take what you learn today and teach it to somebody else. It's that good. It's Jesus stuff. And your kids and your family need to know this about the kingdom of God. That person at work or at the office that you've been witnessing to, you can teach this to them. Maybe your siblings, aunts, uncles, grandparents, whoever. Teach this to somebody, okay? And so towards that end, let me pray for all of us. Lord, as we come to your word today, I pray that we would be energized by the Holy Spirit as we learn more and more about your kingdom. Lord, may we be your ambassadors wherever we go, seizing those opportunities, looking for them and seizing them to speak a word for you. Lord, help us to spread the message of your kingdom. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, week six of our series uh, titled Epic on the Kingdom of God, and we have learned that when Jesus Christ came in the flesh, he announced the arrival of a new kingdom, right? A new administration, a new government, one that would expand slowly over time and eventually replace the kingdom of this world. This new kingdom would operate by a whole different set of principles than the earthly kingdom operates under. And of course, the supreme value in this new kingdom is love for the king, love for King Jesus, supreme devotion to the king. Amen? Amen. Loving Jesus Christ. Citizens of this new kingdom would express their devotion to Jesus in ways that would be both appealing to their neighbors and also puzzling at times to their neighbors because they would live out of a value system that appears to be upside down from the value system of this earthly kingdom. That's why I call it the inverted kingdom of God, the upside down kingdom. So as we talk about this today, first let me remind you of a very important truth about the kingdom, one that Jay, Pastor Jay alluded to last week, and it's this. The kingdom of God is already here, yes, but it's not fully here. Theologians like to say it's already but not yet. It's here but not fully here. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, what I mean by that is that Jesus came and clearly declared that he was bringing the kingdom of God. He basically said, I'm the king. I'm here. I'm bringing the kingdom. It's here. On one occasion, he says, the kingdom of God is among you. So the kingdom of God arrived. But he also said that it wasn't here in its full and final form. That's what several of his kingdom parables were meant to teach, like the parable of that little mustard seed that starts out so tiny but eventually grows into this huge nine-foot tree, or like that parable of the little ball of yeast in the batch of dough that starts out very small and hidden but over time grows and expands. Jesus said that's what his kingdom would be like, small, seemingly insignificant beginnings but ultimately taking over the world. By the way, it was because so many Jewish people didn't understand that reality that Jesus was such a disappointment to them. Have you ever wondered about that? It's like, here's this wonderful man who comes on the scene, right? Jesus Christ. And he was rejected by so many. Have you ever wondered why? Well, there are a lot of reasons why, but one of them is this. They either did not understand or were not interested in a kingdom of humble beginnings. They wanted a bombastic kingdom that would come in with a flourish and take over and revolution and overthrowing the current administration, a tiny, hidden, 
slowly growing kingship was not what they had been longing for. And as a result, the kind of government that Jesus offered was basically rejected. But Jesus was unfazed by that. His kingdom would continue on despite that. In fact, he knew that that rejection would lead to events, i.e. a cross, that would ultimately open the door for people of all races to enter his kingdom, and that's what he had intended all along. So it didn't catch him off guard. Well, one way to understand this already but not yet kingdom is by thinking about the period in our nation that we're in right now here in late November between Election Day and Inauguration Day, which is when? Like late January, right? It's this stretch of about 85 days or so that it's kind of this already but not yet. Now, Mitt Romney messed up my illustration by losing the election. Bummer, okay? And I know for some of you, you, you feel like he messed up other things as well. But let's just pretend that he had won, okay? Let's pretend that, that he had won the election. So this period that we're in right now, between November, what was it, 6th and January 28th, we would say, yes, we have a new president, but his presidency is not fully here yet, right? So it's already, but not yet. The new administration is here but not fully here. That is analogous to this period we're living in right now when the kingdom of God is here, but it's not fully here. Does that make sense? Okay. A mentor of mine taught me a new word recently that defines this reality. It's the word prolepsis. To me, when I heard it, it sounds like a disease. Like, pray for me, my prolepsis is getting worse, you know, that kind of a thing. But that's, it's not a disease. A prolepsis is a current manifestation of a future guaranteed reality. That's what we're living in right now, the period of kingdom history we're in now, prolepsis. The king has arrived. The king has laid claim to his divine right to rule and reign over the earth. He paid the price for citizenship to be granted to those who would bow their knee to him. But his new administration is not fully here yet. He promised it would come, and it will come when he returns. But until then, we live in the prolepsis. But we need to understand something. The citizens of that new kingdom are already living out the values and culture of that kingdom right now. That's like you and me. We're expressing the values and living out the culture of the kingdom of Christ right now, even though his kingdom is not here fully yet. And because of that, our neighbors are getting a glimpse, a foretaste of what life is like lived under the reign of our good King Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That's what we're doing right now. We're expressing the values of this new kingdom. And that leads me to the second point, which is the main point of this sermon. All right. And that is that the kingdom of God is counter-cultural. Would you say that with me? The kingdom of God is countercultural. And when you read in the Bible how Jesus described his kingdom, it becomes very apparent very early on that his kingdom is going to operate by a whole different set of principles than the kingdom of this world. It's been called the upside down kingdom. But that's from our perspective, right? From God's perspective, it's the right side up kingdom, and it's the kingdom of this, of this world that's all inverted and upside down. We're going to study the Beatitudes in a few months, and we're going to see this upside-down kingdom really clearly in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who 
mourn. Happy or the sad? Really? That sounds upside down, doesn't it? Blessed are those who are excluded and persecuted. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You've all heard this phrase before. They march to the beat of a different drummer. That's, that describes those who are living out of the value system of the kingdom of Christ. They're a little different, maybe even a little eccentric by this world's standards. A peculiar people, they march to the beat of a different drummer. Is that you today? Is that me? We're going to spend the remainder of our time exploring some of these countercultural, upside-down values that Jesus spoke of. With apologies to all my Campus Crusade friends, I'm going to refer to them as the four spiritual laws, okay? <laughs> and there's more than four, but we have time for four. And I call them laws because that's what kings do. They reign by establishing laws that define the culture of their kingdom. And so here we go, law number one, kingdom law number one. Get this now, greatness comes through serving. Greatness comes through serving. Oh, how this is upside down from the value system of this world. But listen to the words of Jesus. This is in many places, but here in Matthew 20, he said it this way. Jesus called them to him, his disciples, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your, what? Servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And then he points to himself. Even as the Son of Man, one of his favorite titles for himself, the Son of Man, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Greatness, he said, comes through serving in his kingdom. What strikes me most about this is the culture contrast that he was painting between the kingdom of this world and his kingdom and the fact that we have a choice. Which kingdom are we going to live out of? He was saying, look, here's how power and authority work in the earthly kingdom, and, and we know this. Officials, higher-ups, leaders often use the authority of their position for what? Selfish purposes to hold on to their power, to keep their perks and their comforts, to climb over others, to get higher and higher, to make a name for themselves. Jesus said, that's how it works in the earthly kingdom, but it shall not be so among you, my followers. Which of the two kingdoms will you live out of? Remember, we do live in two kingdoms, right? But in any given moment, we live out of one or the other. Jesus' followers do hold a dual citizenship, as we discovered a couple of weeks ago. But in any given moment in our hearts, we're living out of one or the other. We're being controlled, dominated, or influenced by the kingdom of this world or by the kingdom of Christ. We have a choice. One of those kingdoms is vanishing. It's fading away, the Bible says. It's passing away. The other one is coming like a freight train. <laughs> It's coming, and it will ultimately eclipse, totally eclipse the kingdom of this world. Now note this. In this inverted kingdom of Christ, ruled by Jesus, note what he said. Greatness is not measured by how many people serve you, but by how many people you serve. That's what he said. 
Success is not measured by how high up in the organization you can get to by climbing over other people, but by how many people you can push up ahead of yourselves. That's the measure of greatness. When my kids were smaller, I was trying to teach them principles of the kingdom of God, and I printed out for them on a sheet of paper and tacked it to their wall, this statement, you become successful by making others successful. That's true, isn't it? You know, even the kingdom of this earth is starting to, to grab a hold of this a little bit. You know, in, in recent business literature and so forth, Good to Great by Jim Collins and others, they've started to talk about servant leadership and that the greater, greatest leaders these days are servant leaders. But Jim Collins didn't invent servant leadership. Jesus did it, invented it 2,000 years ago, and he lived it. He lived it. You know, I, I love Jesus Christ for many reasons, but one of them is that I follow a leader who lived what he taught. He lived it out himself. The greatest servant leader of them all, bar none, Jesus the Christ. You know, when I was in Bible college, I entered a pastoral internship program. Supposed to teach us how to be pastors, you know, and you got your own little jacket and everything. It was really cool. And the first thing they said is, okay, you want to learn how to be a pastor? Here's your first assignment stack chairs after chapel service. Start stacking up those chairs and lining up them up against the wall. And I'm thinking, what? You know? And they said, you know what? In the kingdom of Christ, the key to leadership is servanthood. You've got to develop a servant mindset. And we're going to instill that in you by helping you learn how to stack chairs. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. In the kingdom of Christ, the greatest leaders are the greatest servants. Their names may never grace a marquee. They may never be called for an interview by CNN. Nobody may ask them to write a book on success and how I achieved it. But when the kingdom of Christ is fully here, there will be no mistaking who the great ones are. Aren't you glad? Let's remember that. So kingdom law number one, greatness comes through serving. Would you say that with me? Greatness comes through serving. Teach that to somebody. Teach that to your kids. Teach that. Greatness, true greatness comes through serving. Kingdom law number two is related to this. Before I give it to you, let's just read some scriptures. And I just took a sampling. This is all over the Gospels came tumbling out of the lips of Jesus. Matthew 20, 16. So the last will be first, and the first last. Mark 9, 35. And he sat down and called the twelve, said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Mark 10, 44. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. You get the picture? Kingdom law number two. The last will be first. The last will be First. And again, I just picked a few. He, Jesus said this a lot. And if, if repetition is any indication, Jesus was on a mission to press this value deep into the culture of his kingdom. And again, to me, the contrast with this earthly kingdom that we live in is very, very poignant. The earthly kingdom, you know this, says, whatever you do, promote yourself. Do what it takes to get noticed. Push others out of the way to get to the head of the line. Being last is for losers. Win at all costs. Then Jesus came along and flipped that on its head for his followers. 
Now, let's be honest. Let's admit that this kingdom value poses a challenge for us because we do live in this world. And this world's kingdom operates on a whole nother set of principles, the principle of getting ahead. And it takes discernment to understand when and where and in what situation to apply this kingdom value of letting others go ahead of you. That's why we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to lead us every day. Check that. Every moment of every day, walking in the Spirit, listening for the voice of God in your heart saying, this is a situation where this principle applies. Because this could be confusing. The last shall be first. Really? What? Does that mean I should never go in and ask my boss for a promotion? Because that would be promoting myself? Does it mean that I turn down every opportunity I'm given for advancement? Does it mean I should always give the closest parking spot to the other guy? Is Jesus here promising me that if I'll just let somebody else go before me, that I'll get ushered to the front of the line? When we go for lunch today to O'Charlie's or Cheesecake Factory or the new Chipotle's down in Gahanna, am I supposed to stand and hold the door open for everybody else to go ahead of me? Am I ever going to get to eat that way? If I'm seeking to be last and letting others go ahead, how does this apply? I do remember one time being at the airport and I was running a little late to catch my flight and I needed to get through security quickly. You ever been in that situation? And because uh, I needed to make my flight. And as I approached the line there where everything kind of converges, I, me and this group of, of Asian folks were approaching this at the same time. And I'm like, you know, what do I do here? Do I quicken my pace and slide in right ahead of them so I can, you know, make my flight? Or do I do the gentlemanly thing, let others go first? And in that moment, I decided to do the gentlemanly thing. And they went ahead of me, but I was fidgeting about it, you know. I'm like, okay, Lord, what are you going to do here? And sure enough, within one minute, they opened up a brand new line. The lady comes up to me. She ushers me to the front of that line. I get through security fast. I'm jogging down through the concourse. I make my flight. I sit down and I say, dear God, thank you for letting me live in the kingdom of Jesus where the last shall be first. <laughs> love it. I love that. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. <laughs> well... I don't know that we can guarantee that that's always going to happen or that Jesus was promising that in, in every situation. But what, you know what I believe Jesus was promoting here was a mindset, a kingdom mindset that says, I don't have to always be first. I don't have to. I, I can let others go ahead of me. It's okay. I will live. I don't have to try to always come in first, beat everybody else be the best, win every argument, prove my case, come out on top all the time in order to prove something. Why? Because my king has already proved it all for me. He truly was first, but he, didn't he chose to be last and slave of all? I'm telling you, we have a great king. A great king. And one day he's going to come and he's going to set everything right. And those who willingly went last in this life for his sake, he will usher to the head of the line. And that's going to be a stunning and a beautiful, beautiful thing. The last shall be first. You know, Jesus told a parable once about kingdom living where he told people, he said, if you ever get invited to a big fancy banquet and you're tempted to go take the, the front seat, the seat of prominence, he said, don't do that. 
It could be embarrassing for you if the master of the ceremony comes and asks you to go sit in the back. He said, take the back seat. Take the least prominent seat. And maybe the master of the house will come and usher you to the front. That's the mindset that Jesus was trying to impress on his followers. Always needing to have the best seat to be first, to get noticed. Those are the values of this earthly kingdom that's fading away, right? One day that kingdom is going to totally be eclipsed by a new kingdom where the highest values are humility, honoring other people, and love. And even now, that kingdom's culture is being spread every day by followers of Jesus Christ who embrace Jesus' upside-down value system. You lead through serving. You get first by going last. Here's a third law of Christ's inverted kingdom. This is going to mess with you accountants and bookkeeper types. Kingdom law number three, loss is gain. (laughs) Say that with me. Loss is gain. Say, what in the world? Again, we go to Jesus Christ. He's ushering in a new kingdom with a new value system. Mark 8, 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Luke 17, 33, whoever seeks to preserve his life, clutch it tightly, hold on to it because it's mine, will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. You know, Paul was a kingdom guy. He embraced Jesus' value system. Here's how he put it in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You do not know want, you do not want to know what the original word in the Greek means there. In order that I may gain Christ. How many of you have ever watched the show Hoarders? Ever watched that show? I had never watched it and then somebody on staff said, you got to watch this show. It's crazy. So I watched an episode of it, and after I did, it's like, oh, man. I feel like I need to take a shower or something, you know? It's like, all this stuff, you know, nasty stuff. What's going on? I, um, now, if you live like that, Jesus loves you. I don't know how anybody else does, but Jesus loves you <laughs> dearly and deeply. He really does. But I think you ought to adopt a motto that I have, throw something away every day. Just to stay in practice. Throw something away every day. There is something to be said for the uncluttered life. That's another sermon for another day. The the more important question to ask here in our context is, what's underneath a lifestyle like that? What possesses some people to hoard and hang on to everything they've ever owned? In the fading, vanishing kingdom of this world, The mantra goes like this, more is more. Get all you can, can all you get. Life consists in the abundance of the things that you possess. Claim what's yours. He who dies with the most toys wins. More is more. Give in to the desire to acquire. Then Jesus, as he was accustomed to doing, comes along and turns that whole thing right on its head. And he says, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. It doesn't. I call you to give up ownership 
claim to everything that you own, even your own life. And if you want to really live, lose your life in me. Didn't he say that? So math is different in Jesus' kingdom. It's the new kingdom math. More is not always more. Less is more. Less is more. Would you say that with me? Less is more. Some of you need to put that on a sticky note. Hang it on your mirror in your bathroom or on your car's rearview mirror. Less is more. So often that's true. Gaining is not always gain. Oftentimes, losing is gain. And followers of Jesus throughout the centuries have willingly lost a lot in order to gain Christ. Like Dan and Beth were telling us about earlier. Our brothers and sisters on the other side of the planet. So many of them losing so much for the sake of Christ. I've met some of those people in India, in Africa. You know what? They're not, they're not asking us to pray that the persecution would be lifted. They're saying, no, no, no. Pray that we'll have the perseverance to go through this and remain faithful to Christ. That's challenging, isn't it? Thank God for our brothers and sisters around the world. Let's not forget about them. And if you ever get a chance to go, go. It'll change your perspective. Losing to gain. Losing to gain real life. Now, I'm not talking about earning eternal life here. You know that. We know that salvation, eternal life, is a what? A gift of God, not of works. It's a gift from God's gracious hand. It's not something that can be earned by our sacrificial giving or by abandoning material possessions. I, I, neither do I think that Jesus was saying that every one of his followers should give away everything that they own. What Jesus was talking about was a new kingdom lifestyle of those who are already saved, who already possess salvation, a lifestyle free from being controlled by stuff. The vanishing kingdom tells us you just got to have it. You got to have that. But the whisper of the Spirit says, no, you don't. Jesus is what you need. When you have Jesus, you have everything you truly need. But the fading culture shouts at us, no, 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 more. You need more. You'll only be happy if you have more. But again, the Spirit's whisper says, joy is found in Jesus. Joy is found in Jesus, not in having more stuff. Paul was a kingdom guy. He wrote this in Philippians 4. Listen, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And you've heard that verse, but did you know it was attached to contentment? I can be content in any and every situation because of Jesus Christ. Because when you have Christ, you have all that you really need. I know some people sitting in this room who live this way. They have embraced the counterculture, upside down, inverted value system of the kingdom of Christ. They live this way. They live in this world's visible kingdom, but they live out of Christ's invisible kingdom. See the difference? They march to the beat of a different drummer. Christ is their supreme treasure. 
They've given up ownership claim to all of their possessions. That means they're free to throw things away and they're free to give things away. By reducing their inventory, they don't feel like they're losing because to them, loss is gain, less is more. They're empowered by the Spirit of Christ who, though He was rich, yet for our sakes He became poor so that we, through His poverty, might become rich. Years and years and years ago, my former pastor used to say this, the question is not so much do you have things, the question is do things have you? Big difference. Abraham was a man in the Bible who had many possessions, many things, but things did not have him. See the difference? In Christ's kingdom, you gain by losing. You give up to go up. You lead by serving. You go last in order to get ahead, and you give your life away in order to find real life. This is craziness to the world, but it's right in alignment with the upside-down kingdom values of Jesus And so I want to pause right here and ask if any of you, do any of you sense the Spirit of God applying any of these kingdom values to your life right now, to your situation right now, something you're facing in your life? Well, there's one last one I'll mention because three spiritual laws just didn't sound right. So this one's a biggie. Kingdom law number four. Death brings life. Say that with me. Death brings life. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Let me ask, do you want to live Do you want to really live? Then die. This is all over the Bible. I mean, this principle is all over the Bible. It's a prominent spiritual principle of Christ's kingdom. And God has even been gracious enough to weave this kingdom principle into the very seasons that we experience every year here in central Ohio with the cold deadness of winter followed every spring by what? The emergence of life. Death leads to to life. But I think this law, this law of the kingdom is best illustrated by Jesus. When he said the words that I just read, he was speaking about who? Himself. He was the grain of wheat that was about to fall into the ground and die. His was the death that would bear much fruit. He was the one who chose to hate his life in this world Instead, to keep it for all of eternity? Just think about this. What if Jesus had chosen the other path? What if he had loved his life in this world and refused to fall to the earth and die? Then what? Well, then, bless you, then there would be no fruit. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. There would have been no fruit, no eternal life, no salvation for the nations, no kingdom growing all over the earth, no future scene of the lion and the lamb being worshipped in heaven, no eternal kingdom filled with redeemed people from every nation and tribe who gladly live under the rule of their gracious king, 
No new creation, no prepared place, no new Jerusalem coming down from heaven and crashing into the earth. And God's eternal dream of having a special people to dwell with forever, forget it. It's not happening. There would be no special people for God's possession because a holy God cannot dwell with sinful people. If Jesus lives, all of that dies. But if Jesus dies, the kingdom dream is alive and you and I get to be in it. The grain of wheat fell to the ground and died and bore much fruit. Amen? Amen. That's why Christians worship Jesus Christ. That's why people lift their hands when they sing. That's why sometimes you'll see tears streaming down people's faces. Because we serve a king who died for us and bore the fruit of eternal life. Death brings life. You know what? That kingdom principle is woven throughout not only the grand story of the ages, but your story and my story. If you refuse to be slain by the cross that Jesus died on, life will elude you. I promise you that. Real life. If you seek to preserve your life and hold on to it at all costs and clutch it tightly to your chest as if it was yours, you will miss out on really living as it was, life was meant to be lived. But if by God's grace, Jesus' death becomes your death, His resurrection becomes your resurrection. His life is your life. And the life that you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Paul wrote this, I die daily. (laughs) And in the spiritual sense, that's our story as well. Dying daily, listen to me, dying daily to my plans, my ambitions, my goals, my future, Dying to that carefully constructed life that I put together where I'm the king and I try to get everybody else to do my bidding and serve me. Dying to all that. Do you know anybody who's totally wrapped up in themselves? One man said, when you're all wrapped up in yourself, it's a pretty small package. He was right. Dying to that. When I, by God's grace, lose my life, die to all that, then I begin to really live because I was always meant to live for His fame, His glory, His agenda. That's what you were meant for. That's what I was meant for. You say, well, how does this play out? Well, I think it plays out in a a handful of life-altering decisions that you will make in your 60, 70, 80, or 90 years. You know, the big ones. The big life-altering decisions. It plays out in those decisions, but it also plays out in the hundreds of decisions that you make every day and every week and every month that guide your life. How am I going to live? Am I going to live out of the kingdom of this world or am I going to live out of the kingdom of Christ? Am I going to live out of the value system that that Jesus ushered in or am I going to live out of the value system of this world? That plays out every day, doesn't it? In just little decisions that all of us make. A few years ago, a movie came out called The End of the Spear. Anybody... Remember that movie or hear about that, The End of the Spear? The movie told the true story of five young families back in the mid-50s who decided to leave the comforts of the United States and head to the jungles of Ecuador in hopes of making contact with a very remote, very primitive, 
extremely savage and violent tribe called the Alka Indians in order to deliver the gospel to them. If you've ever heard of Jim Elliott or Elizabeth Elliott or Nate Saint, it's their story. That was the story of the movie. The Elliots and their friends were so devoted to King Jesus and his kingdom and spreading that word that they became willing to risk great danger to try and deliver the gospel to this Indian tribe. Less than a week after landing there and establishing a camp, less than a week, a horrific discovery was made. The bodies of the men, the husbands, the wives had stayed back at the compound. The bodies of the men were found on a sandbar there, speared through and hacked up with machetes. It was stunning when it got reported back in this country. Newsweek ran an article on it. Life magazine ran a huge cover story on it. Reader's Digest, they all reported the massacre. The nation was stunned, and one publication led with this headline, What a Colossal Waste of Life. Is that what it was? You know, in recent years, the rest of the story has come out. It's pretty incredible. There's been this ripple effect over the last 60 years from the deaths of those five men. So many heard about the sacrifice and commitment of those five young families that other young people gave their lives to Christ and decided we're going to pick up where they left off. And they headed down into the jungles of Ecuador to preach the gospel to the Alca Indians because the job had been left unfinished by the martyrs. Eventually, that savage Indian tribe was indeed reached with the gospel, including the very man who had put the spear through Jim Elliott's body. His name was George. He got saved. He heard about Jesus Christ. He bowed his knee to the Savior. Death resulted in life. Not only that, the telling of this story over the years through movies like The End of the Spear and the book called Through Gates of Splendor has inspired thousands of young people to give their lives to take the message of Christ to other countries and nations as well, leading to salvation for thousands of people. Death results in life. That's how it works in the kingdom of Christ. Jim Elliott kept a journal of his walk with Christ. And after he died, his wife made it available for others to read. And and his journals reveal in a powerful way the heart of Jim Elliott, and especially the kingdom value system, the upside-down inverted kingdom value system that he embraced and that he lived by. Probably his most famous journal entry was dated October 28, 1949, six years Before he died, he wrote this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Wow, that sums it up, doesn't it? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he can never, ever lose. That statement sums up the upside-down, inverted value system of the kingdom of Christ the kingdom where you lead by serving. Where last goes first, where lost actually becomes profit, and where dying leads to life. These values and others like them provide kind of an internal guidance system for followers of Jesus leading and directing the decisions of their lives. These who choose by God's grace to live in the kingdom of this world, yes, but to live from the kingdom of of Christ. They're an odd bunch. They're an eccentric bunch. They march to the beat of a different drummer. Are you one of those? Are you? 
I hope so. Let's pray together.